Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and then again every Thursday on YouTube as well and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are diving in to the brutal and twisted case of Chris Coleman. I don't want to give anything away about this case or what it entails. I truly want you to be shocked as we go through it, at least as shocked as I was when I was doing my research. So with that all being said, let's jump right on into it today. Now, this case starts in May of 1997, and that is when 21-year-old Sherry Weiss met 22-year-old Chris Coleman. They met at the Lackland Air Force Base, where Sherry was working as a military police officer and Chris was working as a Marine. Chris Coleman was born in 1977 and was born into a pretty religious household with both of his parents being pastors. So pretty much everything that you would think it would be like being raised by two pastors is the exact lifestyle that Chris grew up in. Now, after high school, Chris went on to join the Marines, which is where he worked with canines and that's, like I said, where he met Sherry. Sherry was also born in 1977 and was raised in Cook County, Illinois. The two of them hit it off pretty quickly and so quickly that they ended up getting married the exact same year that they met. They actually eloped in a very private ceremony. And this was not something that Chris's parents were very thrilled about. As I previously mentioned, he grew up in a very religious household, expected to live a very specific way, and privately eloping did not fall into that category. His parents also weren't the biggest fans of Sherry. They were very much under the impression that Sherry was corrupting Chris and was making him make all of these terrible choices, and she was the reason that they didn't have a church wedding, and yada, yada, yada. But regardless of how Chris's parents felt about Sherry, Chris and Sherry were married, and that was the fact of it. And not only were they married, they now were expecting their first child together. On April 30th, 1998, Sherry and Chris welcomed their first son, Garrett Dominic Eugene Coleman. And two years after that, in the year 2000, they had Gavin Christopher Coleman, and they decided to settle their family in Columbia, Illinois. Now, Sherry was a stay-at-home mom, and Chris worked actually as a bodyguard. And the woman that he worked as a bodyguard for is a woman named Joyce Myers, who some of you actually may be familiar with. Now, Joyce Myers is a televangelist, so to speak. And if you don't know what that is, essentially it is someone who uses different forms of media to spread the word of Christianity. So it'll be different seminars or talk shows or book signings or things like that. So Chris was Joyce's personal bodyguard and he was actually making $100,000 a year, which was great for him. And it seemed like a great job on the outside. However, this job definitely caused a lot of friction between Chris and Sherry. 
And this was for multiple reasons. The first reason being that Chris was basically at the beck and call of Joyce Meyer and he had to travel everywhere that she traveled, which in turn meant that he was not home for a decent amount of time, which in turn affected Sherry and their boys. It was said that Garrett and Gavin actually had a calendar on their refrigerator that would count down the days until their dad came home from work. And this was something that Sherry definitely struggled with. Now, along with that, another point of contention here was that Chris made good money. He made, like I said, about $100,000 a year, but the spending habits of Sherry were a point of tension for Chris and Sherry because Sherry was very good at spending the money that Chris was making. She liked to go shopping and she liked donating money to charity and it was frustrating for Chris. Now, other issues in the marriage included the fact that Sherry really didn't think that Chris was very affectionate. She never felt really doted on or just that he was displaying any type of affection towards her, whether they were in private or in public. And along with that, another thing that was a big deal for her was the fact that she never really felt accepted by his family. But those were all issues in their marriage that only very few people knew about, which is typically how it goes. You only tell your close friends and people that you trust the issues that are going on in your relationships or your marriages. But on the outside, Chris and Sherry seemed like the perfect couple. They lived in a cute two-story house together. They had two boys. Chris had a good job. Sherry was a stay-at-home mom. It really did kind of seem like the cookie-cutter life. Now, despite all of the issues in their marriage, Sherry, more than Chris, was very, very, very determined to make this marriage work. It really didn't seem like divorce was an option for her. Sherry told friends that she simply just loved Chris way too much to just give up on their marriage and to give up on their family. So that's what they tried to do. For a couple years, they tried to work on their marriage. They tried to see if they could make it work. And that was all the way up until 2008. And in 2008, things definitely took a turn for the worst. Now, in November of 2008, Chris actually confided in one of his close friends that he was planning on officially divorcing Sherry. He said that they weren't solving any of their marital issues, and he wasn't really interested in trying to make the marriage work anymore. Now, Sherry, on the other hand, was telling some of her friends that she felt like the reason that Chris didn't want to make this marriage work is because he was having an affair and not just any affair and not to downplay affairs because there isn't just any affair, but the affair that she suspected Chris to be having was one with her childhood best friend. And that would be a woman named Tara Lintz. Sherry and Tara knew each other through high school and Sherry actually introduced Chris and Tara. And so she was really torn up about this because these are two people that she trusted and she felt very betrayed by both of them. However, regardless of the suspicions that Sherry was having, she still didn't want to risk breaking up her family. So she didn't confront Chris. As far as we know, at that point, she did not confront Chris about this supposed affair. And according to the friend that Chris confided in about the divorce, 
there was a slight hesitancy with him. And the reason for that was because he worked for Joyce Meyer. And he thought that if he got divorced, he wouldn't be able to work for Joyce Myers anymore. And the reason for that is because Joyce Myers obviously spreads the word of Christianity and doesn't believe in divorce. And if her bodyguard gets a divorce, that's not a good look for her image. So you had the alleged affair happening. You had Chris wanting to get a divorce, but worrying about his job. But all of that kind of took a step to the side when in November of 2008, Chris began receiving very disturbing emails. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. These emails were coming from a sender called destroychris at gmail.com, and they sent emails with subjects like go to hell. And these emails were basically just threats that whoever this was was going to come and kill Chris and his entire family. But not only was Chris being sent these emails, basically his entire work team, including Joyce Myers, was being copied in on these emails. And basically the threat was towards Joyce Myers, but the result of the threat was going to be that whoever was sending this email was going to kill Chris and his entire family because of Joyce Meyer. And let me, let me explain. One of the emails read, quote, stop preaching the bullshit or Chris's family will die. If I can't get to Joyce, then I will get to someone close to her. And if I can't get to him, I will get to his wife and kids. I know Joyce's schedule and I know Chris's schedule. If Joyce doesn't quit preaching the bullshit, then they will die, unquote. Another email said, quote, I know you got my fucking email. You think I am full of shit. Just wait. I will shoot their asses with my 40. Kill them all. I am so sick of bitches like her taking everyone's cash so she can fly her jet and pamper her white ass. Fuck you all. Tell Chris I will kill them. He has no idea when, but it will happen. Unquote. Now, after seeing these emails, Chris immediately filed a police report saying that he was being stalked and threatened. But again, the weird thing about these emails is that they were targeting Joyce. The person who was sending them seemed like their point of anger was towards Joyce and what she was preaching. So because of that, they were going to kill Chris and his entire family. You would think that if someone wanted to get to Joyce and get to someone who's close to Joyce, they would threaten killing Joyce's family. The last email came on April 27th of 2008, and it said, quote, this is my last warning. Your worst nightmare is about to happen, 
unquote. Now, luckily, one of the detectives at the police department actually lived right across the street from Chris Coleman, coincidentally and very ironically. So because he lived right across the street, he was able to set up a security camera and point it right at Chris's house. That way there would be surveillance on Chris's house 24 seven. So no one would go in or out of that house without it being on film. And along with that, police were also parked outside of Chris's house and their job was to see if anyone was coming to canvas the house. However, police and the camera never saw anyone go near Chris Coleman's house. So now we move on to May 5th, 2009. And this day starts really early in the morning. Chris left his house at 5.43 a.m. to drive to St. Louis, which was right across the river, to complete his morning workout. And we're able to verify that he left his house at 5.43 based off of the security camera that the detective had set up that was facing the Coleman's. Very shortly after Chris left his house, he ended up calling his wife, Sherry, just to make sure that she was awake and getting the kids up and ready for the day. However, she never answered the phone. Then shortly after, he texted her multiple times throughout his workout and still got nothing. Now, because of the threatening emails and everything that was happening, Chris started to get very nervous and he ended up calling the detective that lived across the street from him and told him that he wasn't able to get in contact with Sherry and asked the detective to go over and just check on her. Chris told him that he was on his way home and would be there in five minutes. The gym was a very short drive away from Chris's house. It literally was a five minute drive. So he wasn't exaggerating when he said he would be home in five minutes. Now, the detective who lived across the street from Chris was named Detective Barlow, and he walked over to Chris's house, and this is also seen on surveillance footage. He walked over to Chris's house and was met there by another Columbia police officer. And once they were both there, they kind of canvassed the house just to see if anything seemed off or if they could see anything through the windows. And once they got to the back of the house, they were able to notice that one of the screen windows was actually out, which indicated a sign of forced entry. And so because of that, the two of them then called for backup because they were not sure what they were about to walk into. Once backup arrived, they walked into the home and they first noticed the very pungent smell of spray paint and they quickly realized why. The walls of the house had been spray painted with words like punished and I'm always watching you and you have paid. After law enforcement continued walking upstairs, that is when they found the bodies of Garrett, Gavin, and Sherry Coleman all murdered. All three of them had been strangled, and Sherry was the only one that seemed to have some defensive wounds on her, including a black eye. Now, Chris arrived home at 6.56 a.m., and like I said, this was a little bizarre because it should have taken him only five minutes. It literally was, like I said earlier, a five-minute drive, but for whatever reason, it ended up taking him 13 minutes to get home. 
And at this point, Chris's house was taped off. There were officers everywhere. There were ambulances. And Chris was met with police officers who had to tell him about the news of his family. And when Chris was told this, Chris completely dropped to the ground and began sobbing. Chris was then escorted into an ambulance where he sat on a gurney and was consoled by one of the police officers until his parents arrived on the scene. However, during the time that he was in the ambulance, the chaplain noticed that Chris's knuckles actually had red marks on them and he had some scratches on his arms. And when the chaplain asked Chris about his injuries, Chris then began punching the gurney over and over and over again, which essentially just increased his injuries and made them worse. Now, by protocol, Chris was brought down to the police station and basically asked what had happened, what had happened the night before, what had happened that morning. And Chris told authorities that the day prior, it was like any normal day. Him and his kids played together and then they all watched TV together at night. Then him and Sherry tucked the boys in to go to bed. And then Sherry fell asleep with Chris cuddling in his arms. And that's what he said happened the night prior. And then the day of, on May 5th, Chris said that he woke up early to go work out and all throughout his workout, he tried getting in touch with Sherry. However, he wasn't getting any response, which is when he asked Detective Barlow to go over to his house. Now, something else that police figured out fairly quickly was that Detective Barlow wasn't the only one that had surveillance cameras. Chris Coleman actually also had security cameras all throughout his house. So with all of those cameras, you would think that the killer would be seen entering and exiting the house, right? One would think, but wrong. The only person that is seen entering and exiting the house during the morning of May 5th was Chris Coleman. Now, here was kind of the smoking gun in this case, because not only did the cameras reveal that Chris was the only one to go in and out of his own home, when the medical examiner arrived on the scene and was able to assess Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett's bodies, the medical examiner concluded that the three of them had been dead for quite some time. Now, with the way that Chris was explaining the timeline, if there was another killer, that killer would have only had about an hour, pretty much less than an hour of a time frame to go in, murder all three of them, and then spray paint those weird words on the walls and then leave. And again, that would have been caught on camera. However, the medical examiner noted that they had all been dead for at least several hours, which means that they were dead when Chris left his home. Now, when the detectives were in the interrogation with Chris, they asked him this. They brought this to his attention that they would have had to have been dead for several hours. And the detective specifically asked Chris, what would you do if I told you that I don't think your wife was alive when you left this morning? And his exact response was, I would say, yeah, I think she was. 
And when you think about it, that's kind of a bizarre response to have in response to someone telling you that your wife was dead before you left your house in the morning. You would think he would say, absolutely not. I talked to her about this or absolutely not. That's not true. But instead he goes, I think she was alive. Now, when it comes to the investigation, police were able to look through Sherry's phone and they were able to see that before the murders, a couple months before the murders, on December 27th, 2008, she texted her friend kind of venting to her saying that Chris was telling her that he wanted to get a divorce because her and the kids are getting in the way of his job. And according to what Sherry said to this friend during this argument, Sherry told Chris, that she was never going to divorce him. So what was he going to do? Was he going to kill her? Those were the exact words that Sherry told Chris. Now, along with all of this, police also looked into those emails that Chris Coleman was getting because according to Chris, that had to be the person who was responsible for all of this. It had to be the person who was threatening his family, sending those threatening emails. So police went in and tracked the IP address on those emails and see if they could trace that back to where those emails were being sent. And surprise, surprise, the IP address on those emails were traced directly back to Chris Coleman's house. So what does that mean? That means that Chris Coleman was the one who was sending himself those threatening emails. He was the creator of the destroychris at gmail.com email account. He was the one threatening his own family, saying all of this outlandish, bizarre things. It was all Chris the whole time. Police were also able to look at Chris's credit card statements and saw that he purchased a bottle of red candy apple spray paint, which if you're listening to me on the podcast, you can't see from the pictures that the spray paint that was used in the house after the murders was red. So they were able to link that red spray paint to the spray paint that was used in the house. And not only that, they had a forensic handwriting specialist come in and they were also able to match Chris's handwriting with the spray paint that was on the walls. But then we get to Chris's laptop and what they found on Chris's computer was just, I, there's no words. Looking through Chris's computer, police were able to find a lot of adult videos, sex tapes. They found sex tapes and they weren't of Chris and Sherry. Nope. They were of Chris and Tara Lentz, the woman that Sherry accused Chris of having an affair with. And not only that, the woman that was Sherry's childhood high school friend. And something else that they found on his computer, which was very bizarre, was essentially a document. And it was a list of every detail about Tara that there ever could have been. Everything from her birthday, to her favorite perfume, to her favorite NBA player, to her favorite shoe size, to her favorite comfort food, to her jean size, to her favorite ice cream, what her sexual fantasies were. And not only that, he had the day that Tara changed my life, which was November 5th, 2008, right next to it. This document is very bizarre and it doesn't get talked about enough. I think that this is so strange. The fact that he had every tiny minute detail of Tara on his computer like this on a written document. 
Now, not only was Chris having an affair with Tara, but he also planned on marrying her as well. So police asked Chris about all of this, and he said that there was no affair, that the two of them were just friends. However, all of that can be disproven by the materials on his computer. So police decided that they were going to talk to Tara as well. And this is when Tara told police that the two of them were actually together. They weren't just having an affair. They were in a relationship and they were planning on getting married. Tara was even looking at houses for them in St. Louis. She was registering wedding gifts. They were picking out baby names. It was very, very real to her. However, police were able to rule out Tara from having any possible involvement in this very quickly. She had no idea about any of this. She was actually in Florida when all of this happened. But what Tara also told police is that on May 5th, 2009, the day of the murders, it was the exact same day that Chris told Tara that he was going to officially divorce Sherry. And that ended up being the day that his entire family died. So police had their motive in this. Chris wanted to start a new life. He had a new woman. They were planning a new life together. And it was easier to kill his old family than to just get a divorce. And with the evidence of the IP address being linked back to Chris, as well as the fact that Sherry and her boys were all murdered for hours before Chris got back from the gym, which meant that Chris was home with them, Along with all the other evidence that I have presented you with here today, Chris Coleman was arrested for three counts of first-degree murder on his entire family. However, Chris Coleman pled not guilty. The trial began at the beginning of April 2011, and after a month-long trial, Chris was found guilty and sentenced to three life sentences without the possibility of parole. Now, Chris has made multiple appeals, however, they have all been denied, and he is currently serving time at the Wisconsin Department of Corrections. Now, regardless of the fact that Chris pled not guilty, pretty much everyone is convinced that Chris Coleman did this. With all of the evidence, I think it's very, very hard to think that he didn't do this. However, there are two people who are convinced that Chris did not commit this, and that would be his parents. Chris Coleman's parents are still convinced that Chris was not responsible for this and that Sherry is somehow the culprit in this entire situation. It's a whole mess that quite frankly isn't even worth getting into because it's so mind-blowing that someone would think like that. However, that is the Chris Coleman case. All right, you guys, that's going to be all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah, and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every Wednesday, and then again every Thursday on YouTube as well, and you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys, and until then, stay safe. Bye, guys. Bye.